Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you for another episode. I'm going to be interviewing two people today. I typically only have interviews with one person, but these women wrote this book together and requested that we do the interview together. So let me tell you a little bit about the book and then about the authors. The book that we are going to be talking about in the podcast is called Reclaim Compassion, The Adoptive Parent's Guide to Overcoming Blocked Care with Neuroscience and Faith. And this book is by Lisa Qualls and Melissa Corkum. Some of my listeners out there may be familiar with them and the work that they have done in the adoption community. But let me give you a little bit of background. First, Lisa. Lisa Qualls is the author of The Connected Parent that was written along with Dr. Karen Purvis. She is a TBRI practitioner and a Christian spiritual director. As a birth mom and an adoptive mom, she writes and speaks with wisdom about the challenges and beauty of adoption. She lives with her husband in Idaho. So that is Lisa. And then Melissa is an adoptee and an adoptive mom. Melissa Corkum provides insight and resources to adoptees and their parents through her writing, her coaching, and her speaking. She is also a safe and sound protocol practitioner and a certified Enneagram coach. Melissa lives in Maryland, and I'm really looking forward to what they are going to be sharing with us in the podcast today. Some of you may be familiar with the concept of blocked care. I first learned about it through the writing of John Balin and Dan Hughes. So stay tuned. This is an important concept for people to understand and know how to deal with. And my guests will be coming right up. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. In July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock will launch the next session of the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. So, Melissa and Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, Karen. 
Yeah. So when uh, I heard about your new book, uh, Reclaim Compassion, I was so excited because I think this topic of blocked care is revolutionary in a way. Um, I know as a clinician, when I first read John Balin talking about this, and it was like a watershed moment for me. And I do think that this is such an important thing to be aware of and to understand for parents and therapists, right? Because when you're in that state, you look a certain way to a therapist. And if they don't understand like what's happening and what's going on, um, I think that there can be misunderstanding there. You know, well, we, we can talk about that a little bit more as we go along. But um, so thank you for being here. And what prompted you guys to write this book? Well, I think it goes way, way back to my early blogging days. And I, you know, back in the day, we did all our conversation and support actually in the comments of our blog posts. We didn't have Facebook groups and all those things. And I used to do every Tuesday, something called Tuesday topic, and people would send in questions. And I got a question from a mom that said, um, what do I do if I don't like my child? Mm -hmm. And I remember reading it and thinking, yeah, I'm not putting that on my blog. That is going to be a huge problem. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I had to admire her honesty that she was desperately looking for help. She didn't want to feel the way she felt. So I put it out there as a question. And my community of readers just flooded in, first of all, with compassion, but also with so many of their own honest reflections and thoughts about how they were feeling and that they'd never felt they could be honest about, you know, these difficult challenges of feeling. I remember the mom said, I just don't feel the like, you know, like I, I love her, of course, I'm committed, but I don't feel the like. And I definitely had experienced some of that in my own parenting. And what was so interesting to me is as I watched my blog over many, many years, that post remained one of my most read and clicked on posts of all of the, of the 2000 posts I wrote on my blog when it was active. And so I thought about it a lot and I started teaching about, I used to do a workshop called a breakout type session called when your heart feels trampled. Mm -hmm. And then Melissa and I began partnering together and we both felt like this was an area of need for adoptive parents, foster parents. And then one day she called me up and she said, Lisa, you got to listen to this. And she read me a passage from brain-based parenting by Dan Hughes and John Balin, where they named it as blocked care. And I couldn't believe it. Like I cried because when there is a word for what you're experiencing, it, it means you're not, you're not alone. You're not the only person feeling this, you know? So that I think launched us forward into researching and exploring the topic of blocked care and how to help parents overcome it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Melissa, did you want to add anything to that regarding the impetus for the book? Well, I think it's the book we wish we had had. I know that's such a cliche answer in a lot of ways, but I think what's important about the work that we do, especially since we didn't coin, like you said, like we're not 
we didn't come up with these terms. We just learned about them. But but it's a book written from the perspective of two parents who have experienced and still continue to experience blocked care in and out of different seasons of parenting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Karen, your yes. your blo- your excuse me, your podcast was also very influential because I heard your interview with Dan Hughes and he talked about blocked care. Uh-huh. And there was a quote that was so powerful. I listened to it over and over so I could write it down. But he said something to the effect of when there's no reciprocity of relationship, the parent will continue providing care for their child, but their heart sort of leaves. And that has been a core quote. You know how people say something and they have no idea, but I have thought so much about his words and Mm -hmm. that psychoeducation is not enough. Mm-hmm. That parents need compassionate care. So your that episode that you did, that interview was very important. Oh, I, I'm I'm happy to hear that. Um, that that in, in some way, you know, that contributed to helping with these ideas. And I think you know one of the ways I started to think about this as a therapist was that, and, and, and we'll get a little bit more into the neuroscience of this, but the parent is being held hostage by their brain chemistry. That's what I started to tell the other therapists that I supervise, because it's very, one of the reasons I think that this topic is so crucial for listeners. A lot, we have parent listeners and we have therapist listeners is that a parent in blocked care can be appear cold, distant, harsh, And other things like that, because they are not getting that the the dopamine and neurotransmitters in their brain are not releasing to keep them going. And what I found was that when therapists could understand that I was supervising and I was working with and, and myself, too, that this was about brain chemistry. This was a something that was happening in their brains. It helps us have so much more compassion for parents. So I, I'm just so happy that you guys are elevating the information about this and, and getting it out and being so vulnerable yourselves. Yeah, I mean, if we found anything with all of the parents that we serve is that they feel so much shame, Mm -hmm. you know? And when we bring it out into the light and we say, this is not about your character. This is not Mm -hmm. something that you are consciously choosing. This is something that is happening in your brain, in your nervous system. And there is a way forward. And, and people lose like the sense of who they even are. Like, I never thought I would be this kind of mom. How can I feel this way? You know? So um, we talk a lot about shedding the shame. And I think that's a big part of this. You've got to shed the shame in order to do the work to heal your nervous system. Yes. Yes. And um, I think that that shame is so strong in parents, as you said, they start to not recognize who they are and to have both of you 
being so brave as to share your different experiences with this and and to put that even to put that post out there lisa from that person i was like it reminded me okay now we have facebook where you can post anonymously anonymously you know that's one where people would have wanted to post anonymously i don't i don't want somebody to know i feel this way um and it's tragic it for everybody yeah. So I, I think that the, your willingness to share your experiences with it is such a big step just to, to go there. And I think for therapists listening, we have to create enough safety in our office for parents to go there. They need to know that we are not going to be horrified that they could say, you know, I, I just don't know how much longer I can take this. I feel like I don't like this child. Yes, all of us who are child advocates and serving children, we don't want to hear that. But we have to work with the reality of, of what the parent is feeling and work to get that to change. I like that you brought that up in the book. You said um, that, you know, there's a lot of feelings about we have to be careful to not center the adoptive parents experience and i can tell you were sensitive to that in the book and one of the sections where it said but we think adopted children deserve better than blocked hair like that's why we're writing this yeah i think as you're talking about what the therapists and clinicians and professionals may be experiencing as they encounter parents in blocked care especially if they don't have the words for it is this assumption that it might be about a parent's character or their ability to give good care. And one of the signs of blocked care, we we named 10 in the book, but one of them is this um, being cynical about helpful ideas. And so it's not just the shame, it's also like, because from where we sit as parent coaches, we before we knew about blocked care, we would have this where it would be like, well, just try this. and. And parents would say, well, that that's not going to work. And we'd say, well, what about this? Well, that's not going to work. And what about, well, we already tried that. And you feel like you're just, you know, in the cyclical kind of banging your head against the wall and you could, we couldn't figure out like, how do you break, how do you break free of that? And when we realized, oh, like these are probably parents in blocked care, we have to start you know, instead of trying to like slap the bandaid on a gaping wound, like we have to start way back at the foundation. And, and that has given us the ability to get so much more traction and with families who feel Mm -hmm. so stuck because it's recognizing this, this is the thing, the blocked care and the, and the attachment, like all of that is in this cycle and that's affecting our ability to help families get to what you're talking about, where, you know, there can be more compassion for an adoptee and their behaviors and their story and their feelings and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to give a definition as you understand it, and as you write about it in the book, what would you tell listeners? This is what blocked care is. This is our understanding of the definition of blocked care. I like to say, and I think we say this maybe not in so many words in the book, but it it's when a parent's nervous system subconsciously starts to shut down, like the compassion goes away because of extreme stress in the nervous system. 
And that can be from, and we do talk about the four different types of block care that Balin and Hughes defined, you know, that extreme stress can be really big behaviors, you know, pretty continually on a daily basis in the home. And I think we see that type of blocked care often in the adoption and foster care community, Mm -hmm. but blocked care is not, uh, it's not isolated to our community either, because you can also be overwhelmed because of a chronic health issue or because of a global pandemic or a natural disaster or a divorce. Um, Also, I think whenever we're in a relationship that doesn't feel reciprocal the way that our nervous system is designed to have reciprocal relationship, whether that be because a child has attachment wounding from before they came to us, or perhaps has a neuro difference that makes them not respond to social cueing in the way that we're expect like our nervous system is expecting we may cognitively know why they're doing it or that they don't but you know our nervous system as smart as it is is also you know very instinctive not cognitively smart and so it's just instinctively reacting when it doesn't get the type of care and reciprocation it's looking for you know, and I sometimes refer to that as a feedback loop, you know, that, you know, I do, I initiate some contact and and you reciprocate that and we get this, you know, I mean, that's what attach a lot of what attachment is about that back and forth. That's and all the dopamine and oxytocin is created in that positive feedback. loop, right, Right. Right. And it's, and it's mutually reinforcing. Right. So, this is why we don't, you know, just throw our young out the door, you know, because <laughs> it's mutually reinforcing. And so when when that loop is not working, when you're putting that out there and then it's not coming back, it does affect our ability to keep going, keep going and keep doing these things. Like you said, you can do it without heart. You can go through the motions, but your heart isn't in it. And I think the other piece that I at first didn't quite, I don't know if I just overlooked it or if if they weren't talking about it at first, but the blocked trust and the blocked care together. Um, I remember understanding the blocked care first and then, you know, heard a lecture at Attach or something by John Balin. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, these two go together. So could you guys talk about the blocked trust and how that contributes to this whole phenomenon? So blocked trust is what happens in a child's nervous system when their nervous system has experienced a relationship that didn't go the way that it expected. And in that case, it's usually a caregiver didn't provide the care that and the safety, the felt safety that a child needed. And so instead of having a feedback loop that reinforces I'm safe in the world, I can rely on safe adults to, you know, care for me and meet my needs it becomes blocked because it's like you know these people weren't trustworthy maybe they were chaotic maybe they didn't just they just didn't respond whatever that looks like and so i think blocked trust also kind of lines up with other things that we've called it you know attachment challenges and complex trauma like i think all of that 
kind of goes hand in hand. Um, but then you take that, uh, you take a child who has developed blocked trust because of their early attachment history or their, you know, adverse experiences, and you put them in a family that is making, you know, what you were just mentioning, Karen, like reaching out like those bids for connection. And this child's like, well, big people in my life have not been safe. And so it, it doesn't, you know, a child doesn't know the difference between adults in one situation and adults in another, the confirmation biases, all adults are not safe. And so they're going to subconsciously be resistant to that reciprocal relationship that we're talking about. And so a parent comes in, tries to connect, the child either doesn't return that or returns a negative response, right? Throws it back in a parent's face with, you know, either aggression or just or what we feel is meanness and all of those things, right? And so then there's still a feedback loop, but it's a negative feedback loop, you know? Yes. Well, and I think what we see a lot too is that parents, you know, they do keep trying for a while. They really do because they're in it, you know? And and mm-hmm. I think most of us, no, most of us never expected it to be easy right off the bat, you know? So I think parents try really, really hard and then they try to learn more and they try to implement all these skills, but eventually it is so um, kind of disturbing to the nervous system to have their efforts, these bids for connection, either rejected or reacted to that, you know, the same part of the brain that that reacts to physical pain. It's the same part that reacts to emotional pain. So just like a parent wouldn't keep putting their hand on a hot stove, eventually they will start to protect themselves. And, but again, this is not a conscious, oh, I think I'm going to stop, you know, trying to touch my child, hug my child, whatever, make eye contact. Although there is an element of that, but eventually the nervous system becomes very protective. And I know in my own case, I really did try. I tried and I tried and I tried and I tried so many things, but eventually I just felt like I couldn't, like I would just avoid contact Mm -hmm. because it Mm -hmm. was too dangerous almost, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think parents, their brains get very, very taxed and very, very worn out trying to solve this problem until they just can't anymore. Yes. I remember one mother that said, I steeled myself to this child. I had to. And that, that always stuck with me the way she phrased that. And it is a form of protection, you know, um, both the child, the child's protecting themselves and the parents now protecting themselves. And there's this giant barrier to connecting. So yeah, yeah. Um, well, before we wrap up this first part of the interview um, and get into like so many of the practical strategies, everybody out there, if you feel like things are too much theory and not enough practical, that is not the case with this book. Everybody needs to know that. Um, I'll, I'll reiterate that at the end, but you guys have a lot of practical strategies. But I did want to point out another thing I appreciated about the book, although it is faith-based, it's also science-based. And I find sometimes, unfortunately, in our world today, we have so many polarizations (laughs) 
And, you know, we're not able to look at both. And do you want to say anything about that perspective that that you wanted to write a faith-based book that also has a neuroscience in the title? Um, and your thoughts on that before we wrap up our first part of the interview here today? <clears throat> well, we definitely, our faith informs all of our work, you know, yes. because both Melissa and I are uh, followers of Christ. And so it informs our work. And yet what we do can serve everyone. And so we wanted this book to be accessible for everyone. It, people who do not share our faith at all, there's so much there for them as well. Yes. Um, they don't, yeah, I mean, it's just rich in so many different ways. But most of all, I think we just wanted people to know that this book is for everyone. But we also wanted to be upfront and honest, you know, that our faith runs deep in our in our lives and in our work. And so we put it right in the title. But the neuroscience, I mean, from my perspective, it's God who created all of that. And so it pairs perfectly. Yes, yes. Uh, Melissa, did you want to add anything to that? It was a not a decision we made lightly to think about, you know, did we want faith? Like, you know, at first we thought maybe we'll write a book with just the neuroscience and maybe we'll have like a, a faith guide, like a companion book, or maybe we'll put all the faith-based stuff in, you know, in a different section or an appendix or in, you know, pullouts in the book, you know, like maybe we'll really separate it out. But I think this is a, this is a hard grief filled, tricky topic to navigate. And the more we thought about it uh, to be true to ourselves and how we have walked this journey, we, we kind of had to put it all together the way it ended up. And yet I do think, uh, for people that are really looking for something practical that has what we hope is neuroscience that's approachable and not so theoretical that it feels hard to digest. You know, we recognize that people who are the parents who are buying this book, who need this book that, you know, we just talked about this, like their brains are tired, yes. um, but that there is enough there, even if you don't want to do the practices that feel faith-based or spiritual, you could either adapt them for however you do believe, but that you could also still just focus on the parts that don't have faith intricately woven in and do this. There's enough just neuroscience to keep a parent busy uh, as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Well, Listeners, please come back and join us next week as we continue this discussion with Elisa Qualls and Melissa Corkum, their new book, Reclaim Compassion, An Adoptive Parent's Guide to Overcoming Blocked Care with Neuroscience and Faith. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Attachment Theory in Action.